Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right, so when you're ready. Fire away, man. I'm ready to go. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My very special guest today is Dan Ferris. He's the editor of Extreme Value. He's a great value investor. We're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. G'day, Dan. How are you? Oh, very well. Nice to see you, Toby. Yeah, likewise. Good to see you again. I uh, enjoyed chatting to you last time the tables were turned. I really wanted to get you on the other side of the mic, find out what you thought. I've listened to a few of your uh, podcasts where you've been on the other side too, one of them with Med Faber that I really enjoyed. Yeah. I just wanted to get an idea of your philosophy. There's quite a... There's quite a uh, uh, values are very broad church. There are some guys who find themselves at the growthier end, and then there are guys like me who find themselves at the what I call the deeper value end. How do yeah. you kind of characterize what you do? Um, I would say um, that I've made a progression from probably from the deeper end more toward the growthy end over the years. Um, but you know something that that deeper end that it's still there for me. I still look there because I, I found over the years, I found a few things that were so interesting and so cheap that I couldn't resist them. So maybe I'm a hybrid. And, and that, that original idea, which I think it really came from the special situation section of security analysis, right? Um, that, that original deep value idea, that will never leave me, I don't think. But I do think that t today, um, it's a great idea, and it's always been a great idea to try to find a business that's earning a dollar now and that you think can earn ten or twenty, you know, down the road. Um, it's part of the the appeal to that to me is that I think it's relatively easy to find something that you know is a great business. You know, it's it's something you can actually do. It's some it's a handle that you can have control of. You can say these are great businesses, these are not, and and you can really um, I think you, an individual investor especially can learn that probably better than they're going to learn a lot of other stuff individuals try to do or individuals or institutions, right? People get into these predictive strategies where they're trying to figure out, you know, which way the market's going to go up next and all that. It's too fraught with peril and it's too, there's, it's too much potential to be fooled by randomness. Yeah. Um, I think the average sort of naive investor likes to look at price charts because it's available. It's availability bias, right? Whatever yeah. is the easiest data point that's in your face all the time, that's the one you think is important, right? But it doesn't turn out that way in reality, and you get fooled by randomness. And I, I think what most people do when they think they're doing technical analysis, it's sort of like um, you know, seeing Einstein's face in a cloud as it rolls by or something, or, you know, you see faces in the bathroom tile or something. Um, it's more like that than it is anything sophisticated. And I'm not saying there aren't sophisticated people doing technical analysis, but I'm saying the overwhelming majority of individuals are, are not really doing anything like that. So what they should do is learn to say, you know something, let's just say Microsoft is a fantastic business. 
You know, it just gushes cash. It doesn't require a lot of capital. There's a, over a billion people using Office, and they some of them hate it, but they must use it. <laughs> must continue to use Office. You know, Office is embedded in our lives. Yeah, deeply than a lot of products. So, I think it's I think it's probably always going to be a pretty darn good business, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be earning more in five or ten years than it is today. Um, and yeah. So get, is that your definition? How, how do you how do you how do you think about what's a great business? How do you know it's a great business? Um, so you know it's a subjective thing. Let's let's not try to reduce it too much to a formula. Um, but we, you know, in that context, that's what we do around here, Dan. Reduce it I to know. a formula. We reduce it all to a formula. So um, you know, um, financial markers, right? Cash flow. What's the value of a business, right? All the cash you're ever going to take out of it for its whole life, discounted back to the present, right? That's what it's worth. So cash flow, excess cash flow, the ability to generate plenty of that and in a growing stream over the years, pretty important. Um, you know, and then there are things that lead to that, right? So, um, you know, consistent margins. They can even be thin margins, right? Like Costco, I think the net is like consistently like one and a half percent or something. But it's consistent. And that consistency over time, that's the economic anomaly, right? Because in capitalism, in, in a market environment, uh, Profit margins are winnowed away by competition. So when it's consistent over a long period, it's a clue. Can be a clue, strongly. Um, good balance sheets, right? Just, I mean, it's just prudent, right? You don't want to get into a highly levered kind of a situation that can blow up on you. Um, and in general, like, some companies can be good at buying back shares. Most of them stink at it. Um, I think the benefit of of what I would call shareholder rewards, dividends and share repurchases. I'm telling you, this sounds really cynical, but I think one of the primary benefits is that it takes money out of management's hands. You know? Because let's face it, most businesses aren't Berkshire Hathaway. There aren't 75 things that you could potentially invest in. There's like one or two, you know? And and if you get too far afield, you're probably uh, what, you know, Peter Lynch's old thing, diversification, right? Yeah. You're probably doing that with most businesses. So by all means, get the cash out of their hands. You know, it, it, I think over the long term, you find a really good compounding business. Getting the cash out of your hands is even more important than, you know, getting a great deal when they buy back the stock, you know. Um, and then the final thing, we, I look at returns on equity, which I think is a good number for equity holders. There are other, and in general, just that return complex, you know, ROA, ROIC, you want to consistently see those at pretty good levels because, you know, basically that return on equity and, and, you know, these returns on the capital invested, it's like a bank account, right? That's, you know, you, you, you leave money in your bank account and it compounds at that rate and, and you find one that does a substantial rate at all the money that stays in the business and, you know, it, it can be a real humdinger, what Charlie Munger might call a Lollapalooza. So those you, five, five markers are pretty important. How do you think about valuation? So the, the, the finding those things can be, it's not, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it is, you can find those things in the market. The challenge then is finding them at a reasonable price. But how do you know when you're looking at something, is this a reasonable value or is it not? Okay, this <laughs> is a big topic for me because Good. I learned to flip this. Um, you know, the, the old way of discounting cash flow, right? You, you sit down and you, you project. You predict, basically. You say, 
we're going to earn, they're probably going to do, you know, this much in year one and this much in year two, three, four, ten, and then you put some kind of terminal value on the end of it. But, but you're basically predicting the future there. And that has always bothered the hell out of me. Yeah. I don't know the future. Um, What's the solution? The solution, I believe, is um, I got this from reading a book called Expectations Investing by Michael Moveson and Alfred Rappaport. You flip the thing on its, on its ear, and instead of um, predicting the future and discounting that and arriving at a value and trying to buy at a discount to that value, what you do is you plug in those inputs for the future to equal the current share price. So you're basically asking, what is the market saying at this share price? And if the market is saying Starbucks can't grow for another five or ten years, I'm going to call BS on the market, and, and I'm going to say I think it can and, and buy it. That was an example from the Extreme Value Newsletter. We, we looked at that and we thought, this is absurd. Zero growth for Starbucks is absurd and, uh, and you know, turned out to be a pretty good deal, I think. So, so it's that it, it's flipping the process around and and doing the 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 plugins for the future cash flows and it's really revenues, operating margins and free cash flow operating and free cash flow you know, um, and then seeing what that says about the current share price. Sometimes it says it's the market is expecting a lot. Sometimes it's, you know, all the ex expectations are in line with everything management is saying and everything, you know, that people expect in general. And then sometimes there's pessimism built into that. And that's when we pounce. I like that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. When you when you're so easy, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Easy to put into practice. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> when you're constructing your portfolio, do you give any thought to, you know, we've got uh, we've got a lot of exposure to this sector or this industry. We don't want to add something else here. Or do you think if it's a good enough business, I'm going to stick it in the portfolio? Um, two things on that. Look, if, if things get really dirt stinking cheap, uh, I'll be overweight all day long. Um, and, and then, you know, we'll trim if we, if we're right, you know, you can trim on the way up and then you reduce your exposure. Um, but in general, we do worry about exposures um, to a lot of things, you know. Um, real exposure to commodity prices is, is one that you want to watch. Um, you know, exposure to anything that, um, you know, if something pops up in the news and we, we need to take a look at it, we will. You know, you'll just, you can do that on the fly sometimes and you're okay. Um, and we think we try to think about these things as much as possible before you sort of pull the trigger, you know, but you can't think of everything. So you, you do have to you have to worry about what you're exposed to. But I will say this about that. Um, I've learned something about the value of survival. I think a lot of people um, and the basic institutional model is like the 60, 40, you know, stock and bond portfolio. Well, I think people are optimizing too much around a Goldilocks or a really good economy. And they're not thinking about survival. They're not thinking about their own uncle point, right? Um, and that screws you up. 
And so to be truly diversified and really sort of worry about these exposures, I'm, I just haven't found anything better than a big chunk of cash to diversify an equity portfolio. If you know something, man, turn me on to it. <laughs> no, I don't. I can't find it. So what's, what's, a, what's a big chunk of cash? What's your, what's your rough definition of that? I'm talking like um, 20%. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty solid chunk. And it'll make you feel pretty good when you're when you know your equity is down twenty or thirty percent. So you're you're trying to hold something like that through the ordinary course, and then maybe when you get like we've just gone through, you're trying to put a little bit more of that to work, pick up some of the bargains as you go through that. Absolutely, um, and and you know after a year or two to rebalance back to twenty percent, yeah, sounds good to me because I'm not I'm not worried about beating the market. Really, I know that sounds crazy. You know, my, if my readers are listening, they're going, you're not. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully with everything we just went through, they'll, they'll kind of appreciate the viewpoint a little bit more. You know, people tend to do that. Um, but I hope they remember it, you know, five years from now when the market's back up. <laughs> how, how do you think about concentration, diversification, things like that? Um. So, well, diversification for me, you know, it's like, are, are you truly diversified if you have something like cash versus equity? That, that's really it. But as far as, uh, you know, the concentration, um, I assume, you know. Just how, how, like how big is a big yeah, position? Yeah, yeah. So how big of a position? Okay. So for me, a, a big position like pedal to the metal is probably 5% of the portfolio. Um, and these are things, I guess, over the years, what have we, I'm trying to think of things we recommend in the newsletter because I'm a shameless plugger of my newsletter, I guess. Do it. That's what uh, this is for. So, so maybe, um, you know, we did have, I think we recommended 5% on things like, um, you know, Berkshire Hathaway and at one point Walmart, but not anymore. And um, uh, Constellation Brands and, you know, just big big franchisee cash gushers like that with, you know, good brand names to them. And, and uh, what I think people might call an economic moat. I try to stay away from that because it just, it's like this thing that, well, there's a moat. <laughs> so we don't have to worry anymore. Moats are, moats are in motion all the time. You know, is the moat growing? Is it shrinking? Will it disappear? Those are the, those are the real questions. Not is there one or isn't there one? Uh, you know, is there one? Sure. Okay. Yes. But what is it doing? What, what is it? What is it getting bigger or smaller? So, um, and the nature of the moat too, like if you look at Facebook, you know, this is like the greatest advertising platform that's ever been invented, right? Um, you're, you're constantly telling the world what you're in love with and where you are and what you're doing. And that's the best way to sell things to people. Um, but there's this other, there's this, um, tobacco-like quality of social media. Yeah. And I do worry about that a little bit. And and we saw some of that. Um, I was really, I was worried about Facebook. And I forget when, it must have been 2017 at our annual Stansbury meeting in the fall. And then, you know, the next year, I, I guess it, maybe, it was maybe that July 2018, I want to say, July 26th or so. And Facebook lost, uh, I think it was 19 or 20% in a minute because people fell really way out of love with it and and the results were were reflecting that i mean it's 
you know, it's done well since, but um, I just worry, I worry about things like that. One of the, I have these th- thoughts about Facebook that it's a little bit like, uh, it's a little bit, there's a little bit of fashion to it in the sense that the new generation that comes through doesn't want to be on the same platform as the olds are on, which is why you see Insta, I think that's why Facebook it came about in the first instance because it was you had to be at one of these universities it was a little bit exclusive you could get in so mm-hmm. everybody wanted to be in you had to get an invitation and then it grew away and then the next generation don't want that that they know that grandma and mum and dad are on the platform so they want to be on instagram now it's tiktok it keeps on going like that a little bit i think they can keep on buying to kind of to kind of stay there and maintain the position but i i, I wonder how how strong it actually is that network. I know. And, you know, I, I mean, for me, I won't, I won't talk about you, Toby, but for me, I'm like, well, I'm probably an idiot for not owning it. Right. <laughs> because it just gushes money, yeah. you know, it just gushes cash. Um, but, um, you know, you can't own everything. You can't kiss all the girls. You want <laughs> say, right? As much as you might want to. I still think when I look at uh, something like Google too, Google still seems to have a bigger share of the advertising market and it doesn't seem to be quite as, doesn't have quite the same ick factor. You know, it's got that, Yes. everybody's got a Gmail account, doesn't even think about it. Everybody's got that connected to their YouTube account, doesn't really even think about how much Google is really there at every stage of that process. Yeah, it does. It, it, that's right. People don't realize it kind of flies under the radar. And not only that, but... Um, as as um, Whitney Tilson has pointed out, the optionality in things like YouTube is incredible. I mean, you know, YouTube is a huge, huge platform. It's like bigger than Netflix. Um, right. And they don't pay for content up front. They pay for right. it on yeah. the back end and not yeah, much. That's right. There's no CapEx for generating a new hit series, right? It's pretty cool. So... Um, yeah, I, I agree. I like I like Google as a business better than Facebook for sure. I think Google, and you know, of the big fangs, like no matter how you slice it, um, Apple's still a one product company, right? You know, it's like uh, I yeah. think it's in the fifties. It used to be two thirds of the revenue. I think it's now like fifty odd percent. Uh, iPhone, um, you know, iPhone is like more than half the revenue still. So. Oh man, that's tough. You know, you got to as that changes over time. What what becomes the bigger piece of that mix? I don't know. Um, but uh, but yeah, Google and Amazon too. Once you read the first Amazon shareholder letter, and you look at everything he's done, it's like wow. Nobody ever consistently does what they say they're going to do. Yeah. What he, you know, and what he says he's going to do is fantastic. You know, just. Focus on real economic value creation. Don't worry about earnings per share. Worry about cash generation and, and treating customers extraordinarily well, better than what other people are doing. Um, that's a winning formula, you know, and, and he's done it. I guess that's what happens when you get a D Shaw guy. You get a finance guy who becomes an entrepreneur. He kind of knows that you don't yeah. pay taxes, just recycle it all in the business, grow it really big. I know, and I remember in the beginning, you know, all the value guys were screaming, "Oh, he loses money on every book he sells. He's a hedge fund manager." You know, it was just like uh, all the strengths were were seen as weaknesses. But you know, we we sure all get it now, don't we? Yeah, I freely admit that I was one of those guys. Didn't get it until maybe five years ago, and then it's too late, right? Yeah. Yep. Guilty. 
How are you sourcing ideas? How do you come up with your ideas? Are you running screens? Or are you just sort of a little bit more uh, open to reading something and that's an interesting business? How does it happen? Um, you know, I'm supposed to come up with some really cool answer here, but the, <laughs> the truth is I just like to maximize the opportunities for bumping into these things. And you just I just want to take in these days, I want to take in as much material as I can. So I will consciously, this is the systematic part, I guess, I'll consciously go to like Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, e every kind of publication or website that, that I can. And I'll always click on like, there's usually like a company tab, companies or businesses or something like that. Um, and I just want to see what's what's around. And I'll look on, um, I found this one billboard recently. I can't even remember what the heck it's called, but it's like hedge fund managers talking about stuff. And, you know, I'll read any any kind of a newsletter just to see what the person says i'll read anything at least once but it, it's just a matter of um maximizing opportunity to bump into something new that you haven't heard of plus screening i love screening i like to do screening um i i do acquires multiple screens <laughs> <laughs> appreciate that uh, yeah. What about what about sort of a quality type screen? You look, you just look. Let show me all the stuff for the highest ROA, ROIC, ROE. Is that one of the things you look at? Yeah, I just want to see what comes up, you know, because no harm, no foul, right? You, you run a screen and and you get all this stuff you haven't seen before. And and one of the things I like to do every now and then is um, mostly I screen for really good balance sheets. That's like a part of all my screens. Every now and then I think mm, maybe I am really missing something, so I'll take that out and just see what comes up. And I can't honestly say it's been a long time since I found something. I think the last time I did away with that was when I found Prestige Brands Holdings in, it was like right around the crisis, right around the bottom of the crisis in March or April 2009. You know, it's like, wow. And it was like, you know, five times free cash flow. And this business doesn't they don't do manufacturing or even distribution. They just own the brand. It's That's like great. a royalty. Yeah. Back then, it looked really cool. I, I, I'm, it doesn't look as great to me now as it did then, but I thought, wow, nobody wants this thing because it's got $300 million of debt and the market cap is like $300 million, yeah. you know? And it came out of private equity and people feel funny about that sometimes. What, and, what, are, what does it own? What are the prestige brands? Um, you know, it's stuff like... Uh, wart remover like compound w wart remover and and it's changed over the years but back then it was compound w wart remover and um murine eye drops and spick and span uh cleanser and and another type of a cleanser and some little products like that and they did um they reported acvs i, I can't remember what acv stands for but the idea is that like a 90% ACV means this brand is available in 90% of all the places where they sell this type of product. And their ACVs were like 60 and higher on everything. And some 80, 90, 99, I think one of them. I think Compound W was like 99 or something um, at the time. And I thought, wow, it's the Microsoft Office. You can't avoid the thing, right? <laughs> so, yeah. And it's gushing cash. It's a low capex business model. I'm all in, and I and I we recommended the thing and got like a I think it was close to a five bagger or so out of it. Um, yeah, it was four hundred odd percent out of it. So it worked. So it's those things you, you're looking for. Um, 
basically when it, for prestige brands it was like if you think of tissue you don't nobody calls them tissues everybody calls them kleenex it's like almost the thing when you, you want water yeah. you don't want wart remover you're looking for compound w yep it's the yeah. thing that's top of mind yeah and, and that's an interesting it's interesting that you uh named uh kleenex right because that's a that's the classic example but it doesn't mean you want to own the company that makes Kleenex, right? Because people think anything that looks like that is a Kleenex. Right. Um, so, you know, it's it's got to be more like, um, you know, like Office or, or even, even Coke, you know. Coke still is, you know, if you think sodas are a good idea, Coke is still one that a lot of people like to drink. Well, let's talk about Coke. Do you, do you have an opinion on Coke? Because it looks expensive last time I looked at it. Yeah, you know... Um, I'm not I'm not terribly wild about it because it, it maybe it can't grow so much anymore and maybe um, you know the, these things are fantastic ideas can be fantastic ideas for decades and then they can become mediocre ideas and I I know the one good thing I know about Coke is that if you have any kind of a drink product you can't get a better distribution network to be part of than Coke. So there is a chance there that if they can acquire something, you know, if there's a next hot type of a beverage that I'm not seeing and Coke acquires it and shoves it through that yeah. just, um, you know, you drinks cannot be like, it's not virtual. It has to be delivered to me and I have to put it in my hand. Um, but for beverages, you know, we kind of like things like Starbucks and and uh, Constellation brands and stuff. They're more addictive. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you ever uh, take a look at that chart for it's Monster now, but it used to be Hanson's Natural Beverages. Oh, sure. It's famous, right? My yeah. m my mother-in-law had the uh, Hanson's Natural Beverage way back in the day. And, like always had them there. And I went and looked at the chart one day and the chart was, it was up 50,000% or something by the time I'd looked at it and I was like, whoa, that's, that's, I've missed the move in that one. I don't know why. And then, of course, it's proceeded to go on. It's gone up five times or something since then. Just right. unbelievable return in that thing. Yeah, those are interesting situations, right? Because um, I, I'm convinced that like, maybe there are people who can find them and, and know how to look for them. But they, I, I think... I'm only going to luck my way into them. You know, I lucked my way into a multi-bagger on Constellation. I lucked my way into a multi-bagger on, on um, you know, Prestige just because um, I was looking for some other characteristics and the brand name and stuff. I, I felt like I understood all of that, uh, the franchise and the market domination, Constellation, same thing. Um, but uh, my problem here is who the hell holds on for 50,000%? Yeah, that's the hard How, thing, right? It's really hard. Who who does that? They all uh, have big drawdowns too to get there. There's a pretty famous chart. I think Morgan House will put together if you held Amazon to get the big returns in Amazon. It was down 90% three or four or five times. Nobody can hold on through that. Yeah. Yeah, you could and I I thought he was he the one who did the if you bought it at the top of the dot com bubble? You yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. So I was like Oh yeah, that that feels great for five years or ten years, doesn't it? You're going sideways or whatever. Um, it's it's really difficult to do that. When um, you when you mentioned Walmart before, you said it doesn't have. Is it is it a change in Walmart's 
business or is it the valuation that that has changed your mind on Walmart? When did you like it? Like it was it was cheap maybe four years ago. I think it was really cheap. Well, we I liked it in. Uh, gosh, I think the first time was two thousand and five. Um, and and I forget. I think we held into like twenty sixteen or seventeen or something. Maybe I forget. We held it for a long time. It was like maybe even ten years. But um, yeah. So Walmart. Um, I feel like the the thing that I don't understand with them is some of these capital allocation decisions, Flipkart and all this stuff. It just jet. Um, yeah. I I don't completely get it. I know what they're trying to do, yeah. but it just seems so haphazard, and it seems like they're paying so much. It's like um, the, the the analogy I like here was made by a guy named Scott Galloway. It's like you know billion dollar hair plugs for an old man who's trying to get <laughs> girls again. You know, it's just it's not there. I'd rather have a more a better business model. I think is like Dollar General. Yeah. You know. I think the dollar model is better. And and the idea, too, part of the idea behind owning these things, and I think one of the reasons why they're making new highs, you know, Dollar General and Walmart lately, is that um, in bad times, they find a lot of new customers, you know, because people who used to shop yeah. at Whole Foods can't afford it anymore. They're a little bit anti-fragile. Yes, quite a bit, I think. Um, and the, so there's so they, they both did the same thing, didn't they? They both went in, they started out going into the rural areas, serving the underserved customer with, you know, everyday low prices or dollar prices, right? Um, and then that model was able to expand into suburban and even urban areas now. Um, and I think Dollar General has more, you know, upside there than Walmart. And Walmart, you know, they, they've, they're so big that they've, you know, they've kind of gone around the world and experimented and had to get into and out of places like, you know, Germany and I guess South Korea. You know, they they you know, they have to do that and it's not always going to work. So Th- Those big acquisitions are always, they're funny, aren't they? Because I've seen, I remember distinctly when Google bought YouTube for a billion dollars and a lot of value guys made fun of like it was Chad and somebody else were the guys who, they kind of, they look like, you know, they were kids that bought this thing for a billion dollars and everybody just said, what? They've just massively overpaid. They're clearly mm-hmm. one of the greatest investments kind of made over the last 20 years or so. True also with Instagram. Yep. A billion dollars just dropped on a website that wasn't making any money. And wouldn't you love to own Instagram by itself now? Wouldn't you love to have made that investment? But then you got Walmart yeah. with Jet. I don't know if that's going to work out or not. Yeah, it doesn't have the same mojo as YouTube. And Instagram does it, so it yeah. There's there's a problem there with capital allocation, but um, you know I was an idiot. I thought I thought um, I thought Microsoft had the same problem, you know, with Nokia, which I was like, oh my god, and um, and you know there were a couple other ones they made there that they paid billions and billions for, and I thought, oh jeez, um, but all they did was. Get rid of Steve Ballmer, and hey, that's all fixed. <laughs> and, and the underlying, you know, the well, transition to business. Yeah, yeah. The underlying products were just continued to strengthen, and they and they developed new ones too. You know, their enterprise offering became substantial. It flew under the radar and then became substantial. 
It was a very popular value stock in sort of 2011, 2012, something like that. I saw quite a few pictures at like Value Investing Congress and it was kind of around on the internet a little bit. But it was it was one of those one of the years where the revenue line actually declined a little bit for the first time. So you kind of had to be able to figure out does yeah. this thing can this thing start growing again? But then of course they've turned it into a SaaS business and wow. Yep. Yeah. Amazing. And I missed a lot of that ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, t- it's tough, right? If you if you're looking at the quality of the business and you're trying to figure out what is this thing going to look like in the future? If you're not a little bit nervous by that revenue line taking a step back, then what what else are you going to look at? Yeah. Yeah. When, when, you know, declining revenue is to scare the bejeebers out of anybody, right? (laughs) You know, there, there are no people buying declining revenues in foxholes or something. I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's difficult. But in that instance, um, we actually held on through that. We found it in 05. It was that, that 05, 06 period. I went on my, what I called my world dominator jag, where I was buying stuff like, you know, Walmart and, and even at the time, ExxonMobil, I think, was one of them, and Berkshire and, um, and you know, ADP was became one of them in November of 08. And, um, you know, there were, there were a bunch of those bigger ones. Johnson & Johnson became one. We had we had um, AB InBev for a while, um, because I thought, well, you know, I, I, for after a while, um, it was hard to buy value, you know, toward the toward the peak of the yeah. uh, of the housing bubble, and then you know, not too long after it, um, and those were it. Those were the things I was finding that that people didn't seem to want as much around that time. Well, how, how do you feel about now the the current market contrasted to that sort of late uh, aughts period, just pre two thousand, like that six, seven, eight, nine, ten period? I think I like it better now than than a lot of value guys because you know we're we're you know we we were down thirty odd percent or thirty what was it thirty four percent in a couple of weeks or whatever, and then we bounced back so sharp. But for me, the more important thing is that I was bearish for three years and it lo and behold, it finally fell apart. And I feel like we're on the other side now. And on the, on, you know, on the, uh, the, the leading edge of that, everybody's in love with equities. Everything just goes up and up and up. Every dip is bought. Everything's fine. Dan's wrong. Dan's an idiot. Being bearish is stupid. You can't, you know, I couldn't, I had real trouble buying anything at various times. Um, and now there's a lot more uncertainty in the world and there's a lot, uh, less, you know, certainty that everything is going to go up now, right at this moment, as we speak, of course, people are becoming more optimistic because we've had this 20 odd percent bounce really fast, but I still like being on this side of, of that peak a lot better than the, than the front end of it. Are you finding more opportunities now? After I'm talking about after the after the bounce, not necessarily through the through the bottom of that sure. trough. Yeah, I mean we we, you know, we had a couple of things that we, we they they came up and you know we recommended like one of them and now um, they're not as attractive. But there are a couple more um, that are that I think are still pretty attractive. Um, I don't want to say what they are because we haven't written about them yet in extreme value. And frankly, we are, it's like week by week, how much is the market going to go up? Is this thing going to disappear too? 
So we're literally like our next issue of the newsletter is due out um, in the second week of May, as you and I speak in the first week, uh, all, or not quite the first week, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll ride out that first week. May 1st lies on a Friday this year. So we'll ride out the last week of April and right up to like May 1st and, and a couple days before the deadline that we need to publish, we are going to be in decision mode that whole time. And we're probably going to write up two or three things in rough draft and pray that one of them you know, <laughs> stays cheap enough. It's, it's like that. It's day by day now, you know, and I wish the environment would have lasted, but, you know, it didn't. So, Are you publishing? It's a monthly newsletter? Yeah, monthly newsletter comes out second Friday of every month. And do you have to recommend a new name every time or can you just update the portfolio? What do you, what do you like to do? Um, I don't – I'm I'm actually known uh, in Stansberry as the guy who often doesn't recommend a stock if he doesn't want to. And, uh, you know, it pissed readers off a lot of the time, but I think they sort of get it more now. Um, so, so you yeah. publish the whole portfolio at any, like, does the newsletter contain the portfolio, shows what you own and kind of where you're holding it? Yes, it does. It, it contains the model portfolio on the back page. We are to avoid, you know, um, regulatory problems. I can't own the stuff I write about. Really? We're, we're a pure research organization. And so, um, it's a little difficult, but what I wind up doing is, um, to the greatest extent possible, you know, I will own something as similar as possible, you know, to whatever I'm recommending. Um, if there isn't one available, you know, I just have to skip it. And, um, but that's, that's how I've tried to do it over the years. And it, and it mostly has worked. I think it's worked out a little better for the reader. Thank goodness. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it that that's the best I can do to avoid being seen as a, um, you know, as like a '40s Act type advisor. Right. Uh, You've so. got one of the more interesting backgrounds uh, in in value investment. You, you're a rock star turned uh, uh, <laughs> Spanish guitarist. What, what, what's 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 can you tell us that story? Um, well, I was yeah, I was a classical guitar major in. In college, that's what I studied. I studied music. I have a degree in music um, from Towson University in Maryland. And um, I don't know. I just the weird thing about it was like even I remember one of my roommates asking me, you know, um, isn't it going to be tough to make a living as a musician? And, and be and a value I, investor. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I and I said, I said at the time. At the time, I did say, you know, I don't expect to be able to do that. I just can't live without knowing how to do this, without studying this. I just, um, I can't not do it. So, and I've continued to do it, and I, I didn't, I, I put the guitar down for over a decade. I didn't play really at all, but I picked it up in the past few years, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, you know, I, and I've decided, I, I've played all kinds of things over the years. I've played, like, um, musical theater orchestras, you know, Greece and... West Side Story and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And I've played in, you know, just the guitar player in the coffee house kind of a guy and and various things. And even in rock bands when I was younger in, in high school and stuff. Um, but now I just want to play, you know, classical guitar because I realized people, not a lot of people can do that. 
And, you know, I play some fairly sophisticated material, and it's, I, I'd rather differentiate than just sort of be one of the, one of the mob. But I do still play electric a little bit. Um, How does that uh, inform your investing or you just use it to escape? The differentiation sounds, sounds a little familiar. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm convinced that it, that it helps somehow. If only because my, I'm, I'm in my office, my music room is right, is the room next door here. If only by just offering me a five-minute you know, respite from having to think about other things, um, because music is a very, it's a flow activity. When you're doing that, you're, you're not doing anything else, right? Yeah. Um, so, so that's good. You know, it, maybe it is the escape then I would say, but there's something about it. Like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn some more, um, like, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach on the guitar, very difficult material, but wonderful stuff. And there's a complexity to it and there is a structure to it that underlies and once you you know there's so many notes that you can get lost in the in the forest among the trees and then but when you finally learn a piece you step back and that structure becomes so utterly obvious to you and truth to tell it's more complicated than that you 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 try to do the structure first and then you learn all the notes and get lost and then you relearn the structure but but yeah there there's seeing that being able to see the forest for the trees helps it's another thing in life where you need to get lost in the details, just as you do with every stock you buy, in my opinion. You need to go bottom up, and yet when you step back, there, there is a stepping back point when you must look at it from, from the 30,000-foot uh, you know, view. From, there's got to be a larger plan to what you're doing, and that's, that's very stimulative to me. That's very, um, I love that about music in general, is that details working out a larger structure it it's um i all i you the typical thing to think about creativity is that you got a blank canvas in front of you and you can do anything you want but the more creative perspective the more creative situation is when you're kind of stuck in a place and you need to get out of it or you've got a very specific problem that needs to be solved that's that's the real creative thing. So learning to play the prelude from the you know the Bach number four lute suite in E major, that's a very specific problem. You must play every note correctly. How are you going to do that? How are you going to work that out? Because sitting there and going note by note, that's just a non-starter, man. You you know you're not going to get anywhere with that. So you must have an approach. You must have a process or you will go loony shooting yourself in the head. <laughs> Same thing with every stock you come across. It, it can't be a one-off thing each time. You must have some kind of a process, and it has to be a process that works, that you trust. I talked with James Montier about this very subject uh, recently, and, and it, he has a chapter in one of his books, Process, Process, Process. It's the thing you can control, right? It's the thing you can rely on and control and lean into. And, and eventually the topic for investors, especially value investors the last 10 years is, how are you going to hold on when you're down 20, 30%? Well, I'm going to trust the process of knowing and having conviction that XYZ is a truly great business and has excellent long-term potential. And the, the downside in the business, regardless of the, where the share price goes, is limited by 
X, Y, Z, you know, the management, the balance sheet, the model, etc. cetera. Uh, and I've been tested that way with a couple of names and I've, I've stayed the course. Um, and, and it's worked out. I think other people would have, you know, just cut their, cut their losers and moved on, but I've, I've stayed the course and I think it's going to, it's worked out well so far. And I think it's going to work out brilliantly, fingers crossed, uh, over the next several years. Well, how, how do you know when you've made a mistake through a process like that? How do you, how can you tell the difference? Well, that is a one-off thing. <laughs> um, you know, you you have to be very clear on what it is you're doing. In other words, if you're saying, well, this is a lousy business, but it's a net net, and I think it's got real potential to be a multi-bagger, and then it goes bankrupt. Well, you know. <laughs> that's a mistake. <laughs> that's a mistake. We know what happened there. Uh, or it just goes sideways for 20 years because it's a crappy business and nobody cares that it's a net net. Um but with something that's a really that you think is a really excellent business and will be for a long time, you have to and you have to update this. You have to be very clear on why you think it's a great business. And and that's not static. Why you think it's a great business means what are they doing? And will they continue to be able to do this? And if not, what else can be done, if anything? So there's, you know. You, you stick with something, it works for, you know, say five years or something, and then there's a change. And you've got to be able to reassess. It's a brand new company, effectively, at that point. Um, but I think that's how you get the big compounders over time. And, and you know, I think Constellation Brands is a great example. And Prestige is, is a good one, too, because we got out of Prestige because we thought, well, um, these brands aren't as strong as they used to be. And in, and in fact, at that time, I was going through a period where I realized the idea of a brand is different today than what it used to well, be. That's good. I was, inter I was going to ask you about that. Let's talk about brands a little bit. Why, why do you say that? Well, again, it's um, the difference between this static view where you say, well, if it's Coca-Cola, that's it. I'm done with it. It's great brand forever. And saying... Um, where are they now? Where is this brand now? And for me, like I said, the idea of a brand changed um, from a label slapped on a product. The, I, I think the, the old school idea of a brand is um, advertising. You establish this identity through advertising. And then you take that awareness that you've planted in the customer's mind and you've got to have a mechanism for shoving it in front of them in the grocery store and putting it on the end cap, the distribution right. piece. Um, so it's storytelling plus distribution. Well, what the hell does distribution mean in the age of the Internet? Yeah. You know, um, I mean, like the distribution pipe is is the broadband coming into your house. So Google makes a lot of sense now and Microsoft makes a lot of sense and etc. Right. Facebook makes sense in that way. Um, but maybe um, the compound wart remover doesn't because now I can go on Google or Amazon and I'm not looking for a name, am I? I'm looking for a benefit. And I want that benefit to come from the place that offers it for the lowest price. So all of a sudden, having that name compound W or whatever it is, um, it means so. It doesn't mean what it used to mean, where you're walking into the store and deferring to brand, so that you can so that you can be assured you'll get the benefit. Well, now you can scour the earth from your desktop and find the benefit 
at a, at the price you want to pay, at, you know, at the at the lowest price, right? So to me, that's how brand has changed, and it has powerful implications. I think that has implications for value investors because we talk about those deals, Instagram and stuff, and you know they look ridiculous by traditional metrics at, at on the face of it, but then you think, well, how is this thing? You know, it's the distribution pipe is the internet, and 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 kids are already in love with it. You know, people are already in love with it and can't be without it on a daily, hourly basis. Right. And and that has to be kind of enough for you. And you have to understand how those things can be monetized. I'm glad you raised Instagram because I think that that's a, one of the interesting features of Instagram is how good their ads are at targeting stuff that I like, particularly. And I've had this conversation with other people. They like the ads too. You can scroll through and you, the process is different where you previously you needed to go and find the thing that you wanted and now you find the person who you trust who gives you who just recommends these things to you that that you like and that's sort of a that that puts a lot more power in the hands of those influences i guess it does it does it's change it's it's game changing it's um it's it's instead of um you know deferring to brand as you walk through the supermarket, you're walking through Instagram, if you will, and deferring to that individual, that influencer. Yeah. And also Instagram's recommendation engine seems to be very good at, it knows the kind of clothing, for example, that I like, and it recommends this stuff to me all the time. Oh, that's pretty cool. I've bought stuff yeah. from Instagram. Man, and I have to say Facebook too. Facebook and Instagram, they're right on me. <laughs> they, they know what I want by the hour. Um, <laughs> I spend fewer hours on both of them now than ever. You know, I have to consciously do it for Instagram. I don't. I I get a bit of an ick factor from opening up Facebook, but I definitely have to consciously do it for Instagram. Yeah, I, I hear you on Facebook. I just I'm hardly ever on it anymore. There's something about it, and I think maybe maybe ick factor is a good way to think of it. Uh, I just think of every time I open Facebook. It's funny. The same company owns it. Every time I open Facebook, I just I see Mark Zuckerberg in front of me. And there's something about the way they've run this company that rankles me. So I. It's almost I, like we overshared a little bit for some period of time, and now I now I don't want to go back in and see all of that stuff that I overshared, I even though I haven't been I haven't put anything on it for years. Absolutely, I'm ashamed. I don't. That's, want to, that's I what it is. Go back and face it. You know, that's right. Whereas Instagram is a bit more passive. I don't I don't really feel the need to share anything on Instagram. I'm just looking at all these other people who are sharing stuff on it. Ditto. Yes. Totally agreed. Very clever. But then I, 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 you know, I live my life on Twitter because I really love Twitter's a a very interesting tool. And I think it's so funny that I think that Twitter's got a lot more potential than many of these other ones because I think that Instagram's probably, you know, close to its potential. But Twitter seems to have just been, it seems to be terribly run. The ads that they serve me are just nowhere near what I want to look at. And I've got, I'm producing a lot of verbiage on that thing. They must have a pretty good idea what I'm about, you know. Yeah. Yeah, they could they could look through my profile and, you know, read a week of tweets and be all over me, you but would think. they're not. They're so not. I mean, <laughs> I don't think they've ever tried to sell me like in my profile it says something about classical guitar or something. I've I've never been seen a music product yeah. pushed at me on Inst- on uh, Twitter. Never. I have to that they've started doing this and the, the, one of the other funny things is there are three different experiences if you're on twitter.com that's one experience if you use TweetDeck, that's another d- different experience and then if you use the mobile version of it 
mm-hmm. that's a different experience again. There's many more ads on the mobile version and they're all stuff that I have nil interest in. I've noticed too the difference between the mobile and uh, and just you know Twitter.com, um, where I mostly am. And the feed is the feed is different, but yeah, equally useless in terms of ad content. <laughs> I just wonder if Elliot can do something there. Elliot and whoever the uh, the big VC firm that they've I think they've each stuck in a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know who they are either. Um, One of the bigger names. Yeah, it's funny. I. We, I've never really seriously considered Twitter. Maybe if it gets, uh, you know, beaten up again at some point. Yeah, it's just hard to, it's hard on traditional metrics, the way that I prefer to look at these things, to even kind of assess the potential of the business or the the valuation. It's just hard to get a bead on where it is, what it can do. Right. You know, that, um, you know, that Buffety kind of uh, bond with the coupon that grows idea. It, just, it was great for Coca-Cola in the day, but um, it doesn't translate to Twitter. It doesn't Twitter. I do think it does for some. I think you can do it for Facebook. I think you can do it for Google, for Absolutely. Microsoft. I think you can do it for those ones. Twitter's All almost the- still like back to being a startup or something. Yep. Yeah, Twitter is like we're, we're, for years now, for, for yeah. a decade, a decade or, or more. Yeah. We, we've all been sitting here saying they're going you know, to figure this out. They're going to do it. They're going to monetize in a big way. Real, And, you know, I'm still looking at my watch and looking at the calendar and waiting. Um, and it's expensive. I mean, it looks, it's optically, it's still a big kind of expensive thing. So it needs to yep. kind of do something. That's why it's just in no man's land for me. It's not cheap enough to do anything and it's not good enough to do anything either. Yep, it is. It's, it's just out there in, 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 uh, in limbo. I've enjoyed chatting to you, Dan. If, if folks want to get in contact with you, what's the what's the best way of doing that? Um, you can find me on stansberryresearch.com, S-T-A-N-S-B-E-R-R-Y research.com. We also, I found out something recently. You can type worlddominators.com <laughs> and it goes to the extreme value part of the Stansberry website. And, you know, somebody in the company like 10 years ago bought that name and stuck it out there. And we never did anything with it at worlddominators.com. And, and, and you're right to extreme value on Stansberry's website. It's funny. We'll, we'll throw links up to that in the in the notes. And you're you're on Twitter as well. What's your Twitter handle? I'm at dferris1961. Very good. Or if you type Dan Ferris, I think that I should come up. Well, it's been great chatting to you, Dan. Uh, Dan Ferris, editor of Extreme Value. Thank you very much. Thank you, Toby. Always a pleasure. Anytime you want to talk, uh, you know, we'll we'll talk often. I'm sure. Pleasure's mine. Thanks, Dan. <laughs>